begin with a, a review again of the uh, faith rest approach, and then we'll uh, go into prayer and into the lesson. If you turn to uh, Romans 8.28 again, and this will probably be our last time with this promise, but we've gone over it a number of times just so that at least if you're not familiar with it, you will be familiar with it just by sheer repetition. And this is one of those basic uh, promises of the Word of God. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You may have a translation that differs slightly in that because there's a little textual difference uh, in that verse. But it's another example of textual differences don't make doctrinal differences. And we've been going over the uh, faith rest approach and we said it consists of three, pa- three steps, and these can be done in a matter of minutes, seconds. Sometimes it takes hours, because you'll get hit with a problem that you have to struggle with a little bit to walk by faith. So, but the steps are always the same. And we said the first step is you grab hold of a promise in the Word of God. The second step, you prayerfully examine it, And the third step is that you get to the point where you can honestly believe it. And we have to be honest. Sometimes we don't get to step three right away. We say we can, but we—it's you know—do we really, really do we really believe it? And Romans 8:28 is a good illustration of why sometimes it's hard to do to get to step three. And what we've been emphasizing is that in in uh, we've kind of added an aspect to the second step, which I'm going to call closure, because tonight I want to illustrate how that process works. Let's say we have a situation, you remember, maybe driving down the street, at your desk, uh, out walking, whatever, and you remember Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, or God causes all things to work together for good, to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. So you, you remember that, and then this situation that's in your life, you begin to try to enclose that situation, that problem, that trouble, and encompass it inside the promise, so that the promise is larger dimension than the, pro- the problem is. So it encompasses it. And we, we went through last time some of this. So I want to uh, take what we did last week and show how you can perform this closure on the situation. Clearly, one of the prominent features of Romans 8.28 is that section, the first part, that all things work together for good, qualified by a subset of people, those that believe in Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, and where this problem gets difficult to trust, honestly trust, is when you have a bad thing happen. And it's, it could be a personal crisis, it could be a crisis in someone else's life, but it's something that challenges your ability to say that this nasty thing, this mess, is working together for good. And it gets back to the fact that what you're grappling with, once again, is the old evil problem. And the fact of the matter is that we, this thing comes up, this 
to uh, haunt us, as it were, as all creatures in the fallen world, is which view are we believing? And the flesh is programmed by everything in the world to believe the second view, not the first view. And the second view, you remember, is that good and evil are inseparable forever. And they never have been separated, never going to be separated, and they aren't separated now. And the universe is not inherently good. It's just a mix of good and evil. Whereas in the biblical worldview, God originally created all things good. God himself never was a time, never will be a time, when there's any evil or injustice with God. That's his character. I am the, the, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So that's stable. And in the creation, we have a point of the fall. We also have a point of the judgment when good and evil are to be separated. All right, that's the big picture. But now when it comes to applying a promise in an actual situation, we're trying to get to the point where we trust that there is a plan and that it is good and that it is working in this circumstance, whatever the circumstance is. And we went through this last week, again going back to the creator-creature distinction. Bring the creator-creature distinction to all this. It's key to the whole thing. That's the essence of the biblical view over against all pagan views. So we have the creator, we have the creature, and we have this line because there's two levels to reality. There's his level and there's our level, and you can't mix them. Now, in the mentality of the spirit, when we do this the right way, and what we're trying to get at personally, is where we can say that there is a rational and ethical justification for whatever this thing is. Now, what do we mean by rational and ethical? Let me explain something. Rational means that it is logical and that it makes sense and can be thought through. That's what we mean by rational justification. It's not a, a pretend or a make-believe or some chaotic roll of the dice. It is a rational, can be thought through, discussed. A rational and ethical, meaning that it is right and true and just. And the battle always is, and you can think of Job, classic illustration, the, the book of Job, Job's struggle is, is he or is he not going to trust that there is a rational and ethical justification for this crisis or the series of crises that he's coping with? And the argument is, yes, there is. But, and this is the big but, that rational and ethical justification is at the creator's level. And we may or may not be brought into it. Sometimes we, we can glimpse a lot of it. Sometimes we can't glimpse any of it. And the issue always is, is, does he know what he's doing? And is he a good God? That's the whole point here. Does he know what he's doing and is he a good God? Satan tried to attack Adam and Eve on that point right from the very start of history. God is a bad, meanie God. And if God was a good God, he'd let you do anything your heart desired and he doesn't want you. See, he's, he's after you. He's after you. So he sets some bounds and limits, see? Bad God. So it's always the character of God. So the issue is, and I, we quote here Abraham in Genesis 18, the judge of all the earth shall do right. 
And it's a good Bible verse, Genesis 1825. The judge of all the earth shall do right. It's a good promise to remember because it's, it makes sense, it's clear, it's easy to remember. And you'll find yourself reverting back to that. The judge of all the earth shall do right. Abraham had to cope with that when he was doing intercessory prayer over Sodom and Gomorrah. God, will you save it? You know, I mean, my, you know, my, my lot's there. His family's there. Are you going to save the city? And finally, after all the bargaining, Abraham comes to a resolution where he can trust a promise of Scripture. But he comes to that, probably through a lot of thought and prayer, he finally gets to the point where he can say, the judge of all the earth shall do right. And that's where it is. That's the anchor, and that's where the battle is. Now, to get to that point, the Bible gives us help. And we, we have on the graph here, on the bottom level, two areas where you've got a lot of help from Scripture. One is over here at the cross itself. Because one of the arguments against Christianity, and one of the satanic temptations, is to say, God is sovereign? Everybody agree? Oh, yeah, God's sovereign. He can do anything? Omnipotent? Yeah. Well, does he love you then? If he is sovereign and he is omnipotent and this mess is happening, how can you say God is a God of love? Don't you have, in other words, a conflict internal to your whole belief system that there's a conflict going on here between God's sovereignty and omnipotence on one hand and his love on the other? It's a classic place where non-Christians attack with, with vehemence our position. Because they allege that there's a conflict between the attributes that we claim God has, or the Bible claims. We're not claiming it. God, the Bible says. So, in here, inherently in the Scripture, faced with this tragedy or this circumstance that's bugging you, you're, you're thrust against this, this temptation to believe there's a conflict going on. Now, the one partial answer to that is look at the cross of Christ because in the cross, God resolved an apparent conflict to Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints could not resolve the issue of justice and grace. They knew on the one hand that their sins couldn't be forgiven without blood atonement. They knew on the other hand, God, be gracious to me. You've got to be gracious to me because no man can stand in your sight. They had no real answer, though, as to how those two attributes come into play. Because that's the trouble with every non-Christian religion. Whether it's Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, they all suffer right here. Because they can't get forgiveness and justice together. They always make, like Islam always makes, Allah forgive you if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. But that's just an arbitrary forgiveness. What's the basis that Allah can do that? Well, he just does it. Well, why does he do it? How can you claim that Allah is holy and righteous and uncompromising in his justice if you're going to argue that without blood atonement he forgets you? you know, no problem, just a bloodless thing. Nobody pays anything, no sacrifice, nothing. Well, my good works, Zachary. No, we're talking about, suppose you have zero good works. Suppose you have a million good works. The issue is, over here, what about the violations to Allah's holiness? So, in the Old Testament, how did the Old Testament saints have to cope with life? 
They had to trust that the attribute of God's justice and the attribute of His love manifested in grace somehow worked together. And they didn't know how. But this side of the cross, as New Testament saints, we can say, yeah, with Paul, he can be just and the justifier. He can be just, that is, his attribute of justice is, remains unthreatened, and he can justify, that is, he can be gracious to us and give us righteousness and forgiveness. And we know that now because of the cross. So why does this help us in a problem up here? Because it shows us that once there was a conflict, an apparent conflict, and God resolved it in an amazing way. Therefore, do we suppose that maybe someday we'll see how those things played together in this particular tragedy that we're talking about? Yeah, because the precedent for for diminishing these apparent contradictions has already been worked out in one vast area by the cross of Christ. So since the precedent has been set over here, we can trust it over here. That's the way our God works. So it's a battle then. And then the Bible, as we said in the last couple of times, there are at least nine rationales as to why a particular tragedy happens. And people always ask, well, why did this happen? Well, we gave you four reasons why tragedy happens that are directly the consequence of human actions. The fall is one. Genetic defects, death, physical, the mess in the environment, all of that it was a result of a human choice. Don't blame God. It was a consequence of a human choice. Well, God shouldn't have put Adam there and set it all up like that. Why not? He gave us responsibility. See, everybody wants to flee responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault, not mine. And the four rationales that are direct consequence rationales mean, number one, there was a fall. Genesis chapter 2, God said, in the day that you eat, you're going to die. Now, is God being what he says or not? not going to have a recount to go over the fall again because somebody screwed up and couldn't understand what the word meant. Then the second thing is that whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. So, we have disobedience leads to suffering. Self-induced misery. Explains a lot of suffering. A lot of suffering. Self-induced misery. And then we came upon the fact that you can have... Um, self-induced misery by association with others that are involved and you're kind of corporately adhering to them and so on. So this is kind of a second, uh, number three, which is the second version of number two. And then we have, of course, the fourth rationale, why there is hell. Why is there hell? Why do people wind up in hell? The consequence of a decision. A decision to say that I don't need a substitutionary blood atonement. I don't need Jesus Christ. I don't need God's grace. Why am I in hell? Because I made a decision. Did God twist my arm to make that decision? No, he didn't. That's a decision that I have made. So, those are four parts of the positive rationale. And then we had five reasons why tragedies happen, and they cannot be directly traced with anything you do. And this blows people away to even think this way. Because we're so groomed like the disciples, Lord, uh, did this man sin that he was born blind? Because 
the, the, you know, in our rationale, we want to somehow say this tragedy is due to that cause and there's a connection here between them. But the Bible says there are at least five reasons why tragedies occur that are not related directly to something in the immediate environment. And one of those is because God is trying to wake somebody up to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the evangelistic call. Paul was an example of that. He, did he suffer on the Damascus Road? Yeah. Why? Because God was calling him. Did people in the Old Testament suffer because God had to get their attention? Yeah. It's the old two-by-four on the side of the head to get attention. So that's one reason why. And it's not related to an immediate disobedience. It's just, you know, we're fat, dumb, and happy non-Christians waltzing along. And God says, time to wake up, fella. And when? So that's one of the five reasons. Then we said there's a second reason why. Psalm 119, verse 71, which says, It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And the idea there is that God will bring suffering and trials to grow us. It's not related to some sin we've done. It's not because you disobeyed yesterday at 3 o'clock and today you're clobbered. It isn't that simple. It may just be that that is to nudge further spiritual growth. And it's a loving act to train. Uh, a third reason that we said, the, th the third, fourth, and fifth, are all witnessing reasons. And think of to whom we witness, or to whom this can be a, a demonstration. Point number three would be a witness to non-Christians. And we gave 1 Timothy 1.16, I think, in there. An example to them who will believe in the future. So a non-Christian may be looking at you in the middle of a suffering situation and you may not even realize they're looking at you. But they, kind of, they are. They're trying to observe what are you made out of. And when they see the spiritual adherence to Scripture, manifestation of the life of Christ, then they're attracted to Christ and the Gospel. So the third reason is an evangelism, a, a witness to a non-Christian. Then we said a fourth reason is a witness to other believers to encourage them. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Comfort others with the comfort wherewith you have been comforted. Because you've gone through a tragedy, you've gone through life, you've had, you know, you got knocked on the side of the head. And so here, here's this other Christian right now in a mess. And you can kind of come alongside of them in a way that nobody else can. Somebody else can't do what you can do because God had you go down this path, suffering this, suffering that, learning this, learning that, claiming this promise, claiming that promise, falling down, picking yourself up, confessing sin, moving on, going through all that. And you know what? It fits what's going on over here. So that's the, the fourth of the, of the disconnected reasons. As a witness to other believers or as a help to other believers. And then the most mysterious one is Ephesians 3.10, which we're going to get into more this year as we do delve further into the church age, and that is the manifold wisdom of God is being learned by angelic observers to us. In some way, they are standing by, invisible, watching us, 
and learning by watching us and the Lord work with us about the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10. So there's nine rationales here as to why that suffering may be rationally and ethically justifiable. So these are all the tools that are available in the text of Scripture. You don't need a book on psychotherapy, don't need a course in psychiatry, and don't need all the gobbledygook that goes on in the name of counseling. All it really needs is this fundamental tool of the faith rest approach and working through this. And you get better at it, you know, as you go along until the Lord gives you a bigger trial. So that's, that's the, the nice way of doing it. Now let's look what a mess it is if you try not to do it that way. Let's look at the mentality of the flesh. Now here's an example of what I wanted to introduce tonight. Here's an example of closure. Now what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is I'm going to show you why the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. Up to now we said, here we have a promise and the battle is to trust this promise. The problem is that as we are battling this, we can be tempted to look off, wondering if there's another possible approach. What does the world have to offer here? And it can be peripherally in our vision, and as long as it's peripherally in our vision, we're not focused. So that's why I've kind of added this. This closes off that kind of stuff. Because the best way of coping with that, if that's the problem, is to turn right around and say, okay, what does the world system have to offer? Well, let's confront it eyeball to eyeball. You know, you want to tempt me? Okay. Now, what, what do you got to offer here? So what we're doing here is we're looking the world, the flesh, and the devil right in the eyeball. Eyeball to eyeball. And we're saying, what do you got to offer in this situation? Well, if you divide the population up statistically and they saw this issue of evil or suffering or sorrow, probably less than 1% would argue that, well, that's okay. I don't really believe in evil, just an imagination. Now, there really are some people like that in the Christian science area. Mary Baker, Patterson, Glover, Eddy or something. She denied the existence of evil. Denied there was such thing as sickness. It's all in your head until she had her teeth filled. So, the point is that some people do believe this, but not many. And if they do, then they don't have a problem because they're not bothered by it. But most people, if they see a tragedy, they see a heartache, they see a disaster, they see a mess, they're going to say, it's wrong. Now, watch this. If somebody is facing a disaster, they may be angry at you, they may be angry at God, they may be angry at the gospel, they're ready to fire, blow you away with all kinds of argument and flack. But you know one thing? They're mad at the presence of evil. Now, you may never have thought about this, but this is very encouraging. Because if they're mad at the presence of evil, what have they just admitted? They've admitted to the biblical worldview that evil is abnormal. They've admitted that it isn't just passive and, oh, well, just, you know, the universe just evolved over millions of years and it's going to be evil, it was evil and always will be evil, so I just have to, you know, ride the sled. 
No, they don't want to ride the sled. This is something bad. And when they get mad that something is bad, guess what they said? That it's evil. It's not by a vote. Not because 51% of people say it's bad. You'll get that slick answer in some academic classroom somewhere. It's the corporate mores. Baloney is the corporate mores. If you step on their toe and they say it's wrong, and the whole class votes for it, it's okay to step on your toe. Does that make it right for you? No, you're going to protest that because you know somehow it's wrong, and you're mad at it. So you know it's not by vote. You know it's not private choice. It's not, it's not that you don't personally like it. It's, it's bigger than that. It's that it's violating some standard of justice here. Something's wrong. And it's not just social convention. So there's a secret admission of Bible truth everybody, every time somebody gets mad at evil. Every time somebody says it's bad and I'm angry and I want justice. That's a good sign because it means at least the conscience is going ding, 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 ding. Evil is abnormal, evil is abnormal, evil is abnormal. You should be mad, you should be mad, you should be mad. So, so take heart. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that they're mad or that you're mad if you're in this mode of thought. There's something else that works here. Now watch. Inside the soul, there's a tremendous conflict that develops right here. And this is, a, as the old saying goes, this is an irresistible force meeting an immovable object because there's no resolution to this particular conflict. As long as this conflict goes on in the soul, there is absolutely no answer to it. While admitting that it's bad, that evil and tragedy is a violation of some standard that is not by vote, by private choice, or by convention, there's a desire for a rational and ethical justification. Why is this? Because God's given us a mind and a conscience. It's working. It wants to know, why did this thing happen? And it better be a good reason. This baby died, or this poor child suffered like it did. Well, I tell you, it better be a good reason. And that's the cry of a person with a mind that's active and a conscience that's active. That is bad. But, what happens in the flesh, and where sin enters into this, is that whatever rational and ethical justification that goes on, it's got to be justified to the creature. It's got to be down here. You've got to reason, God, you bring it down here and I'll check it out. That's what's wrong. Now, there's an amazing sub-feature to this. I won't tell you, just a few, let me play with this for a few seconds and then I'm going to show you something even more startling. The desire is to bring down whatever this reason and justice is and we're going to plop it right here on the table and I want to examine it and I'll decide whether it's right or wrong. Okay? That's the battle. That the creature is going to be the judge of God here. And God has no right to have a, whatever reasons he's got, he has no right to withhold those reasons from my investigation. Now think about the book of Job. In the beginning of that book, we get a little insight as to why Job had his trials with Satan and so on and so forth. But does Job ever find that out in the rest of the book? 
What is the end of the book of Job? Does he say, oh, I understand now. Satan came in to had a conference with you yesterday. No. Job's never brought into that discussion. What, how does the book of Job end? Remember? He said, I've just been uttering words without knowledge. I shut my mouth. I don't know what I'm talking about. So, what has happened to Job? Boing, he suddenly realized that justification may always be unavailable, and he's got to trust the Lord with it. Now here, we want to pull it down, and we want to justify it to the creature. Now here's the, here's the coup de grace with this whole process. Think of what, in our flesh, we want to do. We want to bring God's plan, and we want to bring His his whole rationale down here in the table so we can check it out. What did Eve do in the garden? When faced with Genesis 2 saying that in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. And Satan says in the day that you eat of, you're not going to die. So Eve had God and she had a creature. And she wanted to make both of them equal of equal authority and lay them on the table so she could check it out. So now here's, here's where the coup de grace is. This action in our rebellious, sinful hearts is precisely a replay of the fall of man in Eden. That is exactly what Eve did. So in the cry, in this battle that's going on, it's a replay of the original fall. So somebody that's angry because something has happened, rightfully so, but then, at the same time, they're angry that something's happening, makes the simultaneous argument that they are not going to trust God or anything else until He answers to me. And the moment they do that, they have part of the evil problem right there. They, they are the problem. So, ironically, in objecting to evil, they created some more. Because all they're doing in their heart of hearts is redoing and replaying Adam and Eve all over again. So, this shows that there is not an adequate answer to cope with these tragedies outside of Scripture. This is what I mean by closure. It's a self-refuting argument. It's internally contradictory on a way, on a plane that is, is way beyond anything that the Bible has. All right, let's uh, have a word of prayer and we'll go to uh, the... Um, ascent and session of Christ. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness that you demonstrate time and again through history. We ask that you would remind us as we go through our lives day by day to faith rest in the promises that you have given to us. And that when we do encounter tragedies and heartaches and suffering and sorrow and circumstance, adverse circumstances, that we will have almost a reflex spiritual action to go to a promise to meditate upon it for however long it takes and get our hearts settled so they can rest in you with the absolute confidence that apart from that promise, apart from you, apart from your word, apart from the cross of Christ, there is no other answer. And therefore, we will not be tempted to drift off into other pastures because there's no grass in the other pastures. There aren't even any pastures. We're in the only pasture that it is, that is, and that is the Word of God. So we pray that you would develop that single-minded, focused faith in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Okay, we've been dealing with the, the ascension and session of Christ, and we've looked at some of the Psalms where the New Testament authors have brought in this material. The, here's a correction on page 9. Uh, if you didn't do it, I, I think I mentioned it, but some uh, didn't hear me. It's obviously up in the third line of the top of page 9 where it says, Paul, in application, alters the verb receive in Psalm 68 to receive. It means give. Okay? And then uh, we had Sarah, uh, uh, another error. And I'm so glad that people point errors out. It means they are reading the notes. On page 14... We have Hebrews 1.2 and Hebrews 2.26. There is no Hebrews 2.26. No matter what version of the Bible you have, you won't find Hebrews 2.26. It's Hebrews 9.26. Okay? All right. Now, let's go. We, we, we dealt last week with uh, Psalm, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Now let's turn this evening to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, and we'll look at Psalm 2. What are we doing? We're going to Old Testament passages, three key Old Testament passages that the New Testament authors wrote. And they, uh, New Testament authors didn't write, that New Testament authors appropriated and used to explain the session of Christ. Because again, to draw the picture, here we have the Mount of Ascent. The Lord Jesus Christ ascends. A cloud takes him up and he disappears. The resurrection appearances cease. There's no more resurrection appearances of Christ walking on earth. He disappears and invisibly moves somewhere to the throne of God. And since this is not observed historically, this aspect to the Lord Jesus after the cloud receives him has to be taught to us through imagery given in the pages of God's Word. And the images that the New Testament authors have picked, Daniel chapter 7, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110. Of course, there's others, but these are three key ones that we're looking at, and tonight we're looking at Psalm 2. Many of you will be familiar with this of Handel's Messiah. But the key passage in this is verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell, and that's, that's God speaking. Now, in uh, verse 7, the address, uh, the speaker, it alternates between the king and God. And here in verse 7, it's the king speaking whoever this king is, this royal son, I will surely tell of the decree of Jehovah or Yahweh. He has said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them in earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all they that take their refuge in him. The picture of Psalm 2 is that of the royal son of David. 
And so you have right actually to the west of the Mount of Ascent, you have Mount Zion. This is the Mount of Ascension. The valley runs between them as Kedron. And on that western mountain is where the temple was. And the picture, remember we had last time of uh, Psalm 68, David taking the ark up there at the end of the, the conquest period. And so Jehovah came up in the form of the ark and David started meditating on that and the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And it took David off into the corridors, down the corridors of history over centuries of time until he could see the Messiah and that Messianic age. And it was connected to him because God had promised what in the Davidic covenant? That what kind of a dynasty would David have in contrast to the dynasties of all the other kings of the earth, including Saul? It would be a dynasty that would never end. Now, there's only two ways you can have a dynasty that won't end. You can have an infinite number of successors, or you can terminate the dynasty in a person who has eternal life. And so the Davidic covenant promises that a son of David will one day come and the dynasty will be forever protected and will become the world dynasty. Now, at this point we have to sort through things very carefully because there are those with various prophetic viewpoints that insist that Jesus Christ today, sitting at the Father's right hand, is actually fulfilling the Davidic covenant reigning from Mount Zion. Well, obviously, he's not in Jerusalem. Both Arafat and uh, the other guy will testify to that. Jesus is not on Mount Zion tonight. So therefore, if Jesus is not on Mount Zion tonight, but he's fulfilled his Davidic covenant, now all of a sudden the Davidic covenant has become spiritualized and turned into a metaphor. Well, no. It's going to be a literal Davidic covenant. It's going to reign on earth. So the one thing that we noticed about this psalm is that in verse 6, when it says, I install my king on Mount Zion, it means Zion of David. It doesn't mean some, the, the Lord's throne. That's Zion, the physical, literal Mount Zion that you can fly an airplane over or you can watch on your approach to David Ben-Gurion Airport today. That's the Mount Zion meant in verse 6. And that is not being fulfilled today. This king is not on that mountain, reigning. However, verse 7 speaks again in this vision way, I'll tell of the decree of the Lord, Thou art my son, I have begotten thee. And the idea is that whoever this king is, we'll call this king the ideal king, this ideal king carries on a conversation with God. And Psalm 2, while it looks at this king as he has come back to Mount Zion, also adds the fact that God has decreed certain things to happen through the king. And in verse 8, one of the things that is to happen to that king is, the king is supposed to pray, and he is supposed to ask the Lord to give him the earth. He is supposed to be asking the Father to give him his inheritance. And when the king gets the inheritance, then he will rule. And verse 9 says, You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthen wire. In other words, there is to be a physical, political, military, as it were, takeover 
of all the nations by the son of David. Now, you see, you have to be careful here. You see why we prefaced this fall and what we're doing here? Remember I led you through premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and I warned you about something? Remember, you hear me, did you remember when I said, beware of replacement theology? And what do we say replacement theology was? The church takes the place of Israel. The church replaces Israel. If you look at verses like 9, if the church replaces Israel, you can very easily get a triumphalism in which the church conquers the world for Christ. And post-millennials believe that. There are many post-millennials that believe right now the Mosaic Covenant is the only law to be respected on this planet, and it should be imposed upon America, and it should be in the Mosaic Code, and it should be imposed in all nations. We should revert back to stoning, and we should do everything according to that Mosaic Law Code because it stands for all time. And they will not be content until they politically take It's almost like Islam and Jahid here. Now, there's something true about what they're trying to do. There's something true. We'll get to that. But that isn't it. Verse 7, uh, verse 9 is talking about Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom, that is what he's going to do. He's going to judge the world. There'll be no doubt about it. So, what are we saying? We're saying that Psalm 2 depicts the greater son of David, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, it's saying certain things about the Lord Jesus. It's saying in verse 6 that one day he will reign from Mount Zion on earth physically. It says in verse 9 that he will have a global reign and power. But in verse 7 and 8, there's something that Jesus does with the Father and in prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer is asking the Father to give him the nations as an inheritance. Quite obviously, the Father hasn't given Jesus the nations as an inheritance yet. So verse uh, 7 and 8 point to something. Between the time of the session, the session of the Lord Jesus, when he sits down at the Father's right hand, until the time when he reigns full power with all of his crown, and so it's manifested on earth, there is a time interval. And during that time interval, God the Son is asking God the Father to give him the nations for an inheritance. He's praying that prayer. So uh, the church age is in here. And so what we want to do is, this sets up something for the church age. Now, we saw a little bit of that when we dealt with Psalm 68. Remember that passage in Ephesians 4? And it uses Psalm 68? Okay, let's go to Ephesians 4 again. Hold the place in Psalm 2, just, just so you can remember verses 7 and 8. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4 is Psalm 68, which we have already studied. Or at least we looked at and really studied it in depth. And it says in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Ephesians, when it's talking about gifted people to the church, it says, verse 8, remember we said last week, this is a good example of apostolic exegesis. The apostles didn't uh, give book reviews. 
they went to the text of the Old Testament and they taught it word by word. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he's quoting the text now, the text of Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. And we said this, the picture of Jesus Christ ascending in victory of some sort, and he gets booty from the defeated foes, and he, instead of receiving booty like a ancient god would have been dramatized to show. Instead of receiving booty, he takes the booty and then he gives it to the church. And what constitutes the booty? Money? No. What is the booty? Gifted men. Now what is this, we said? What it is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is asking the Father for this future kingdom. And, and these prayers are being executed every moment of the church age. Every time someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes a POW away from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus Christ has just captured another one. The picture here is a war going on with the gospel. And that as one person trusts in Christ, they are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They become a prisoner of war, the cosmic war that Jesus is reigning and he is waging. And what does Jesus do? He takes these prisoners of war, he gives them gifts, and he gives them back to his church. So we have something going on in this church age. Well, that's Psalm 2. Let's, uh, oh, and by the way, while we're looking at Psalm 2, notice it talks about, I will reign and break them and reign with a rod of iron. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 227, so you can see how that same imagery, the rod of iron, is used by the New Testament authors. Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. Verse 26, 27 of Revelation chapter 2. And he who overcomes... This is Revelation 2.26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. And in the context, this is all the churches of, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, Asia Minor there. And he's giving them promises about the future. You will see in the margin, in fine print, and we'll have to use the bifocals to see, you will notice that that is Psalm 2 that is quoted there. He will, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Now, to make sense of that verse, go back in your mind to what we did last week with Daniel 7. What did we say the Son of Man referred to? Remember those visions of Daniel? And we saw the Son of Man. And the Son of Man equals the leader plus the people. All those images are, are dual images. They include Jesus, but they mean more than that, the people. And here you see in verse 26 and 27 how closely... The people, the saved people of the church age, are identified with this king. So, 
Here, the point I'm making right now, though, is in verse 27, there's the rule with the rod of iron. It's not happening today. It's happening at the end time in the future. Okay? So, that's the idea of Psalm 2. That Psalm 2 is the... Um, is, the, uh, is an image psalm for this process all through the church age. Now let's go to another psalm, Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The New Testament authors dwell on this psalm again and again and again. They went back to it. It is just loaded with all kinds of prophetic material. And we're not going to even come close to exhausting it tonight. All we're doing is we're skimming these to get the general idea of the imagery that the New Testament authors use to understand Jesus in his session. The Lord says to my Lord, by the way, who wrote the psalm? David. So it was written at the height of the kingdom. Okay. Now, if David is the highest authority in the kingdom... Who is David's Lord? See, Jesus used this verse in the Gospels. He played with the Pharisees over this one. He said, who do you think Psalm 110 verse 1 is? Huh? Who's David's Lord? The Lord says to my Lord. So there you have the, an Old Testament instance of plurality in the Godhead that nobody says, that people say doesn't exist. I haven't read Psalm 110 verse 1 carefully. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand. Now look at this. Look at this. Sit at my right hand until, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So here's the picture of the Lord Jesus at the Father's right hand, staying there in heaven, not on earth, until something happens. Until thine enemies are a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely. And now it goes into an uh, exposition of getting Israel involved with it. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. Notice this now. Verses 1 to 3 are kingly duties. And now in verses 4 and following, he's talking about being a priest. Was David a priest? Was he in the tribe of Aaron? No, he's in the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a Levite. Couldn't have been a Levite, Levitical priest. But the fact of the matter is, David seemed to exercise quasi-priestly authority when he sacrificed to the Lord, when the ark went up. But he did so not because he was trying to compete with the Aaronic priesthood. It was because he was exercising another strange kind of priesthood, this one. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's very illuminating that the Messiah, which would be the object of Psalm 110, his priesthood is a Gentile priesthood. Now, isn't that strange? Not a Jewish priesthood, a Gentile priesthood, because Melchizedek was who? Melchizedek preceded Abraham, remember? And what was Melchizedek doing in history? When he blessed Abraham, it was like he was handing the torch of God's light from whatever the kind of administration God had in the dispensation from Noah to Abraham, however his word was transmitted, however the believers were organized, 
something changed as the civilization became paganized. Abraham was called out to start a counterculture. And the guy that handed the baton was Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an emblem of the Gentile original core of authority in civilization. Because Melchizedek was a king and a priest together. Remember, he had bread and wine, but he also was the king. So you had, so to speak, originally in civilization, the church and states were kind of together in these people. Probably one reason why it paganized very rapidly, not separating the powers. And by the way, uh, that's just a footnote. You are about to witness in our nation's history, uh, probably, a debate over the existence of the um, Electoral College. Because everybody, you know, the, the two-bit commentators and talking heads all think that that's an evil. And it wasn't an evil. The uh, college uh, of, of, the, uh, of the electors is a feature, a wonderful and marvelous feature in our country's history, put there by men who were consciously biblical. Some of them were unconsciously biblical. They were unbelievers personally. But the Word of God so influenced the generation of the founders of this country that they realized that everybody was a goddamn miserable sinner and left to any of ourselves, we would wind up debauching ourselves and wrecking government and becoming a little two-bit republic or a kingdom like they had just come out of in Europe. And they were not interested in perpetuating that mess. So therefore, the founding fathers said, because we're all depraved, miserable sinners, we're going to put controls in the government. We are not going to have a direct democracy. Direct democracy comes out of pagan Athens and the Greek city-states. It is not American. It is pagan direct democracy. And the reason it's pagan is because it exalts the deity of the mob. Uh, democracies always wind up degenerating into the rule of the mob. And the founding fathers knew that they did not want this country ruled by mobs, so therefore they broke it up to make it impossible to do. Or not impossible, but very difficult to do. And so they formed a republic in which these powers are separated. And if you read Francis Schaeffer, you'll see what he says about even Switzerland. They were so serious about separating the executive, legislative, and judicial. What do they do in Switzerland? They separated them geographically. Put one in one city, one in another city, and one in another city. They wouldn't even have them on all the same city because they didn't want the guys conniving with each other. That's how suspicious they were of the political system. So our country was founded with a deep and profound suspicion of the political process and what fallen men would do with it. So they put all these roadblocks in there. And people don't like the roadblocks now, see. So we have a couple of senator-elects wandering around the country going to try to campaign to get the Electoral College run. But that's a d direct assault on a biblical understanding of human nature. A true believer in democracy does not believe in the sin nature of man. Think about it. If you believe in a pure and simple democracy, you have a very naive view of man, probably believe in the goodness, everybody's got good in their heart, so everybody's going to vote good. Uh, that's not biblical. So the founding fathers built that in. They built a constitution, which acted actually, you know what the constitution, the whole idea was? It's really very parallel to the early Puritan churches. 
What do you suppose was the analog to the Constitution in the church? The Bible. Now, they, they got the idea that you had to have an abiding law so that one generation could save it for the next. You could have cross-generational communication because this didn't change. So enamored with this, they decide they have sort of a political version of the Bible, which was the Constitution. And they set up all kinds of problems in it so you couldn't amend it very easy. And that was to act sort of, you know, you engineers, it act like a flywheel so that you couldn't have jerks like this in society. The flywheel kind of smoothed things over, so it was very, very difficult to mess with it. The diabolical thing is, in our day, is that this and the Constitution have both been shortchanged by a very simple satanic tactic. And the tactic is to interpret everything allegorically. Once you interpret the Bible allegorically, it's, it's useless. You might as well chuck it. And once you have a group of lawyers who do not believe in a literal hermeneutic of the law, the Constitution's worthless because it means whatever the court said it meant last week at 2 o'clock. It's just plastic. It's rubber. So the Bible and the Constitution can be turned into a rubber and into useless documents by a foolish hermeneutic or approach to how you interpret it. So anyway, Psalm 110 is the def definition of Jesus Christ's priesthood and that priesthood and the kingship can be legitimately combined, the powers can be legitimately combined in Him. Why? How can all the powers of government be entrusted to Him? Because He's resurrected and sinless. And that's why the church of Jesus Christ and the Millennial Kingdom actually will be acting as the political leaders of the earth and the globe. Because why? Because at that time, we will be resurrected and incorruptible. That's the only way you can get concentration of power is to have incorruptible people doing it. So that's why uh, this priest, this Melchizedek priest, it has, combines all the powers. But the idea tonight, to get back to our theme, is that Jesus Christ became this priest and began exercising it apparently here, or at least in his humanity here, might have exercised it in his pre-incarnate nature before, but Psalm 110, like Psalm 2, like Daniel 7, all argue that there's this time interval and something is going on that's very, very interesting in the church age that has something to do with Jesus Christ conquering the nations and yet not conquering them in a political way. So if you'll close by looking at the chart on page 13, we'll summarize these three and then there is one uh, verse that I want you to see in the New Testament and I don't see that I put it here but I meant to. Uh, if you'll turn to Ephesians 1 verse 20. The chart on page 13 gives you those three passages we studied the last two nights. And it tells you, it divides up the accomplishments of the session and the accomplishments still await it. The first column there, the accomplishments of the session, they are finished as of the completion of the first advent of Christ. The ad, the, all the things going on in the second column are not finished until the second advent of Christ.
And so the inter-Advent age, the church age, separates those two columns. Now, when the New Testament authors used this Old Testament imagery, they did one thing that's not in the, New Test- uh, not, not in the Old Testament directly. It's there by inference. And they made it explicit. If you look at Ephesians 1, this is one of dozens of verses we could go to. But look at what it, what it asks. See if you, by observing verse 20 and verse 21 of Ephesians 1, if you can spot what the author, in this case Paul, what he has done, what new information does he tell us about Christ today, tonight? Let's read it through slowly. Which he wrought about in Christ, he raised him from the dead, we know that, that was the resurrection, He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's the session. Now, look at what he does when he explains the implications of Christ's session. He says, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, who do you suppose Paul refers to in verse 21? when he says, all rule, authority and power and dominion, especially after the word that closes out verse 20. How does verse 20 end? He is where? He is in the heavenly places. And it's there where he is over all principalities and powers. Now, if you took a concordance and checked up principalities and powers, you know what we're talking about here, right? It's It's the angelic forces that operate in history. Remember Daniel? Remember when he prayed? Remember, Gabriel came to him and he had a big fight with, with the king of Persia. And it wasn't the human king of Persia. The human king of Persia didn't have an anti-air defense. That was another thing going on behind the political scene. And the biblical picture is that history has an appearance to it. A material, political, physical appearance. And we live in an appearance Every day of our lives, we're working on a world that appears the way it is. But the New Testament adds another thing here. It's adding that behind this appearance, there's a reality. And most of that reality we do not observe, and it does not appear to us. And whatever Jesus is doing at the Father's right hand is vitally related to this reality going on that doesn't appear. There's something going on, so we say, in the background. And as Christians, that's what we want to do as we move into this church age. We're going to pull this curtain back a little bit on this unseen world and this unseen angelic conflict because that is one of the reasons for the existence of the inter-advent period. Is Jesus doing something? Yes. Is history accomplishing something from moment to moment? Yes. Is it the kingdom being advanced? Yes. How? something related to our existence as believers and Christians and united together in the body of Christ. So that's the theme that we'll move on for as we get into the next section. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we ask that your Holy Spirit keep illuminating us to the significance of each one of our lives and your work in our life. That we never get bored with our existence. That we never... Um, get slack and uh, begin to think there's uh, no reason for living, there's just a, we're just marking time. 
Rather, will you infuse us with a biblical understanding of the fact that very significant things occur moment by moment all around us. Some we see, but most we don't. And we want to have the eyes of faith that we can see the unseen and realize with the New Testament authors that there are principalities and powers and a battle going on for the control of the very cosmos around us. We thank you, Father, for saving us and illuminating us to these truths. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, I'll entertain any questions that you want to throw out. Got seminary student in the back row now. Don't let that intimidate you. Yes. Yeah, the church, uh, the question that Don is pointing out isn't it interesting the light of the analog of the marriage, the groom and, the, and Christ, and the close relationship between Jesus Christ and, and the believers, that the um, role of the king in the kingdom includes the king's bride. And you'll see this gradually emerges as we go on through this thing. Uh, it's just that tonight, what we want to do, and, and we, by the way, in this case, we won't meet next week, right? Because it's Thanksgiving, but we'll meet two weeks from now. Um, the, uh, what I'm trying to get across in this session is we're starting now with Christ's position. We want to firmly establish and get a hold of Christ's position because not too many weeks we're going to get into what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, we can't get the, the, the content to what that means isn't really substantive until we know what, what Christ is. What is he doing? Where is he located physically tonight? And what big thing is he doing? And so we want to get that kind of in our minds fixed. And the session is the event that gives you the imagery to do that. Later, we'll talk the next event coming up is Pentecost and the, and the filling of, the, of the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Spirit to the church. And that sometimes, because it's more glamorous and people talk about it more, that tends to e uh, eclipse the emphasis on the session ascension of Christ. And I'm trying to balance it so that when we get to Pentecost, yeah, Pentecost is Pentecost, but Pentecost is the arrival of the Spirit sent by whom? From where? So, we want to put Pentecost in the perspective here. It carries out something that started at the session.
Yeah, Debbie's bringing up the uh, uh, point that in Romans it talks about uh, the uh, blindness in part has come to Israel until uh, the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And that's another very important commentary over this inter-advent age, of what's going on in the inter-advent age. Um, and she mentioned she used the words um, rescue mission to the Gentiles to bring them into the kingdom, and it is that. And that's why, precisely because of that, that when you read these, these biblical images of conquest, you need to realize that the conquest that is going on is directed at what holds the Gentiles in dominion. In other words, Christ has enemies tonight, and then enemies aren't in one sense, the enemies are not the unsaved. They're the principalities and powers that control this world system. Because remember, the only reason why we become Christians is because the gospel has been pumped our way. And we take for granted, we take for granted that the gospel is just kind of, oh, well, you know, yeah, the gospel came my way, yeah. We forget that to get the gospel to us took something. And that Satan opposes that. And this is why Satan opposed Paul and his missions. What does he say? He, Satan what him? Satan hindered him from coming to certain places. Why? Because what did Satan know Paul would do if he got to those certain places? He would bring the gospel with him. And the Bible says, who is it that seeks to take the word of God out from the human heart? Just as soon as it's delivered. See? in unseen principalities and powers. So we're very naive, and in the 20th century, 21st century, um, modern man, quote-unquote, actually, it's, it's quite reversed the way he thinks. A modern man thinks he's very sophisticated, and the ancient people were stupid. Uh, I mean, these poor, stupid people in the Bible days that just were so superstitious that they believed all these fairy stories. Well, we got our own fairy stories. I mean, I don't think anybody in the ancient world thought men came from apes. You know? Uh, they would really have a laugh over that one. In fact, I'm told by missionaries who have told in the, in the Indonesian, Paul Richardson and those guys in the New Tribes, they told um, the natives about what we believe, you know, we being the country in the West, because the natives wanted to know what Western culture was like. Yeah, we believe that monkeys come, you know, men come from monkeys. Um, and they weren't saying Christians believe that, they were just saying that's what our culture teaches. And the natives probably died laughing. So because they couldn't believe that, you know, that they never heard that one, they thought that was a good one. Um, so, we're not, the, we're not the sophisticates of history. And we have lost a lot. It's true, we don't want to be spiritists, we don't want to be preoccupied with the principalities and powers, but, but the New Testament talks about them. And the place the New Testament appears to talk about them the most is when it talks about the session of Christ. It talks about he ascends, he, pu he pulls rank on them, he outranks them, he has the high ground. 
And it's encouraging to know that, that in all the chaos of history, the apparent chaos of history, who is it that reigns and who is in place right now and to whom do the angelic powers, ferocious though they may be, and they are, because what image does Paul say Satan is? A roaring lion. Now, he's not going around knocking on the doors. He's busting them down. So, he, he's ferocious, but he's outranked. Jesus Christ has the high ground. And so he, he, he'll never capture it. He can't push Jesus off that high ground. So that's comforting. And that gives content, you see, when we get into the Holy Spirit does this and the Holy Spirit does that and all the rest of it in the church age. All of that's kind of involved in this intrigue that's going on. Later we'll see passages like in Romans 8, you know that passage where it says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. And what does it say? With groanings that cannot be uttered and people have taken that to mean that you know this is uh, some uh, esoteric thing that's going on uh, if you look up the word uh, groanings that cannot be uttered it's a word in the Greek language that was used of secret fraternities and the idea wasn't that it was a non-human word it was because of security because you have a group fraternity or a club or a mystical cult and they kept security over their terminology. And that was the deal. It was unutterable because it was classified information. Now you add that meaning back into Romans 8, looks what it does. In that passage, the Holy Spirit is praying from us to the Father. And he's praying over what in the context? He's praying over our weaknesses. He's praying over things in our life. He's praying for us to be sanctified. And the Bible says that he's praying on a secure channel. That's the way we would do it in our high communication age, a secure channel. Now that's interesting. Why is the Holy Spirit not praying in an unsecure channel? See, this relates to something that's going on with the church, that it's sort of this one-upmanship, that Satan is in the position of a reactor. He can't really initiate things. He's going around the world trying to put out fires because he can't get into these, these uh, calm channels that are going on linking believers with the Lord Jesus Christ. The conversation is going on right now between the Holy Spirit. And, you know, he'd probably be scared to see what he's praying about us. Um, but he's praying for your sanctification, for my sanctification, but he's doing it in such a way that it's not being heard by certain individuals. And that tells us there's a war going on here. And there's security. There's what we call in the military OPSEC. Operational security. And why do you need operational security if they're not enemies around clandestine hearers that might, uh, knowing the prayer, anticipate problem answers to that prayer? So it's part of the big war, part of the cosmic thing that's going on. And it keeps the initiative in Jesus Christ's camp. Jesus always initiates, Satan always comes in with a counterfeit afterwards, and you can see it in church history. Every time the Holy Spirit does a work, Satan does a counterwork. I'll give you an example of recent history. When I was in college in the uh, late 50s and early 60s, do you know who it was that originated free speech in the college campus? 
Now, I, I know what you read in the textbooks, 1964 in Berkeley. That was the time when they used the four-letter words and they were defying the authorities and stuff. Hey, pal, that's a counterfeit. You know what happened in the late 50s? Who it was that opened the campuses of America up to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was Campus Crusade and Bill Bright. And all on campuses from California to New England, there were all kinds of conflicts because the campus were closed to the gospel in those days. Absolutely closed. You didn't go around witnessing to Jesus Christ. Not unless you want. I spent, I know, I was involved in it. And in my senior year at MIT, I spent at least one day a week in the dean of students' office explaining why one evangelistic event after another occurred on MIT campus. And this was years before Berkeley. So now what you have, you have the hippies and all the left-wingers, and they think they're so proud they were the free speech movement. Baloney, it was the Christians that opened up the campuses of America in the late 50s. So where you had the Satan, where you have the Holy Spirit work, Satan comes in and he counterfeits. He always has a counterfeit to everything. But if you begin to look at the track record, you'll see why the Holy Spirit has, a, has OPSEC. And all of a sudden there's a, an event where God surprises people, and then Satan comes in right like this to try to, try to ha cover it up and cover it over. It's, it's repeated ad nauseum down through the corridors of church history. So that's one of the neat things that goes on here. And I hope as we go through these passages and you get a glimpse of this age, it's, it makes us an exciting age. We don't have to envy Abraham, David, and Saul and the, and the, the guys in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah. They, they had exciting things happen in their lives. But we live in one of the most exciting times of, of God's history because of what's going on. Um, our time is kind of up, and so next week, no meeting, and we'll have a meeting two weeks from now, and I'll have some more notes for you then. But you'll notice in the notes you already have, there's a, sub, there's a whole section there on judgment salvation. That's what we're going to cover next time.